some guys plugged away during the sermon and got the furnaces working. So you guys are, little did you know, you are indebted to some amazing men of God. <clears throat> so I uh, <clears throat> went out yesterday and went to a new barber. I got my hair cut yesterday. Do I look good? I told him not to touch the beard. I'm finishing strong for No Shave November, gearing up for Don't Shave December. So, <clears throat> Anyway, uh, my normal barber was closed, and um, since Sarah wasn't going to let me back in the house without getting a haircut, I had to um, go to a new barber and uh, found this barber shop, and it was a cool little barber shop, walked in. Guys uh, cutting hair, busy, busy place. They had a lot, of, I think they had uh, eight chairs set up, which is a lot for a barber. They had the Ohio State-Michigan football game on. Um, sorry, Michigan fans. Let's, can we just pray a second for their Michigan fans in this room? Um, I'm just kidding, uh, sort of. <clears throat> um, yeah, and the, those, those barbers, man, they were... They were cutting hair without even watching the hair. I mean, they were watching the game. I don't know how they were cutting hair, but the haircuts look good. These guys are professionals. Um, So anyway, I I sit down and have a seat and uh, um, got talking to these guys, and and three of them are uh, Catholic guys that go down to the uh, Mount Carmel, which is on Lewis down here. And um, The other guy, uh, he's a young guy going to college studying graphic design, Um, just a bright, bright lad. And uh, we got talking about faith and <clears throat> going back and forth, just sharing stuff. He he found out I was a pastor, so he gave me like the full treatment, trimmed my eyebrows. I've never had that done before. Um, that was kind of weird. Uh, like I don't know, in a good way, I guess. Now they're not all poking out everywhere. Um, <clears throat> I didn't know they needed to be trimmed before, but I do now. Um, <clears throat> we got talking about kind of world events and stuff and asked him, we talked about ISIS and he said, you know, George, um, those people have forgotten how to be human. Um, We were all born on this earth, not as a Christian or a Muslim, but we were born human. And he said, you know, they feel like God needs them. But the reality is, is we all need God. That was cool, hearing that from my barber. He, he's an interesting guy. He uh, uh, was born in Israel, um, but he's not Jewish. Uh, his name's Muhammad, and he's a Muslim. And uh, just going back and forth talking with him, um, was excited to hear about the church, was excited said, hey, if, if you ever need any graphic design work, uh, you know, let me know. Gave me his email address and said, you know, let me know. Um, I want to help in any way. And, you know, his statement has been ringing in me. His statement uh, about, you know, we, God doesn't need us. We need God. He chooses to use us. But ultimately, it's, it's us that are dependent on him. I know, I don't want to take too much longer on this topic, but I know that things that are happening in the world today are, are scary. Uh, there's a lot of wicked stuff and 
there's a lot of spiritual stuff out there that are making people do crazy things. But remember what the scripture says, that the battle isn't against flesh and blood. The battle isn't against me versus my barber, Muhammad. The battle is against powers and principalities. And the battle is not over powers and principalities, but the battle is over people. The battle is over humans. The same humans that Muhammad was talking about when we were born. Now, oh my goodness, you know, I don't mean to rock you guys' theology. I'm not like here endorsing Islam or anything. Of course, they need Jesus. You know, what Muhammad is searching, he is searching for something. And he has not even landed in his own faith to the fullest degree. That's all he knows and that's all he has. But he's hungry for God. You can tell there's a desire in him that says, you know what? I need God. God doesn't need me. I need God. It's reminded me of this verse in in Acts. Acts chapter 17, Paul is uh, talking um, this famous Mars Hill sermon as he's talking to the pagan Greeks. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. I've been praying for our city. I've been praying over this territory. I've been praying over this place that includes this little barber shop that I went to. And I've been asking the Lord for the land. Before you amen too much, I want to let you know that the Lord has been working in me in the way that I pray. And how I used to pray is I've been praying against abortion clinics and strip clubs, and I've been praying against poverty, and I've been asking the Lord to bring business and industry into Toledo to make this place a prosperous place. I've been praying in my neighborhoods. For years, I've done prayer walks in my neighborhoods saying, God, bring healing to the families. And the Lord has been slowly and gently changing the way that I pray. And it's gone from praying uh, uh, for the blessing or praying against the curse or the products of the curse and more about praying for the people Muhammad was talking about, the humans, the people. As many of you know, um, I have been uh, just gripped with this vision. If you're not familiar with this, I'll tell you today in a really short story uh, back in November or uh, January and February, we had a, a, just a, a real encounter corporately with the presence of God, and we were meeting almost, almost every night. And one of the things is that wrapped out that one of the things Uh, that remained as that season came to the end, is this hunger and this desire to see every single person in greater Toledo saved. 500,000 is our target number, and that 500,000 isn't a number. Those are people. 
500,000 people. And that includes my friend Muhammad. And yesterday, for the first time, I would say as I sat in that barber chair, a face sort of emerged out of this number, out of this grand picture, this idea. And it's this young 28-year-old college student immigrated here from Israel, here not to blow things up, here to make a better life for himself, but ultimately is searching for God. And you know what? I believe he's come to the right city. A couple of weeks ago, if you weren't here, that's fine. I, I prophesied or, or, or read this, actually, this blessing. And I just, it was a prophetic moment. And I opened up scripture. I read this blessing that actually comes out of uh, Exodus, Exodus 23. And, and it, it's, it's an amazing blessing that God is blessing his people, uh, the Israelites, as they were coming out of captivity. And at the end of it, I, didn't, I actually stopped at this point, and I didn't read the full blessing. And I've been wrestling with it ever since, as I've been rereading it and saying, what does this mean? What are you talking about here? And I'm going to read it to you because this fits exactly with the principle that God is speaking to us now. And he says, I will not, verse 20, uh, chapter 23, verse 29, if you're in your Bibles at all. He's talking to this nomadic people, right? They just left out of Egypt. They have no land. He's speaking to a nomadic people. He says, I will not drive them out before you in one year. Notice, I will not. I'm not going to drive them out. It's not going to be a, a one year ahead of time thing. I am not going to drive them out in uh, before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Key, key words. Until you have increased and possessed the land. I'm not going to clear the land out just for it to sit idle. And I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines. And from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And you shall drive them out. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods, and they, will, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. That doesn't sound much like a blessing, uh, but assuredly it is. This is the Lord's blessing, but it comes with some warnings in it. He's saying two things. He's saying, I'm not pushing them out before you're ready. And when that does happen, when you take the land, you, you are to preserve the land. You are to be pure and holy. God will not simply drive out the demonic inhabitants of the land because there simply will not be a holy occupation to inhabit it. I've seen this firsthand. 
I remember maybe six, seven years ago, the platinum showgirls across the street burned down. And I remember in my heart, I'm just being honest with you, I remember in my heart kind of getting a little excited. I'm like, yeah, praise God. And what happened? They built an even bigger and better one. I remember when the, uh, I live near Sylvania Avenue and there's this Westwood Theater. And for years and years and years, uh, I mean, decades, it had been an adult film uh, place. It, basically porn, a porn shop, a porn theater. And, and I remember several years back it closing down. And I remember getting excited, like, finally, finally, God, I've been praying that, that this would leave our neighborhood and it'd be shut down. And, and it was shut down. You know what? It takes, it takes uh, 12 months for a grandfather clause, if it's not occupied, uh, for that grandfather clause to be dissolved. Because you're not allowed to have just porn theaters in neighborhoods. Okay, but this place had been around before there had been codes saying you can't have that. And 11 months into it, guess what happens? They open one up. Even worse than the one before. And when I mean worse, I mean way worse than before. There's some principles here. There's some principles that we need to understand. And Jesus, Jesus articulates this in Luke chapter 11. He says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and, f- and finds none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order, and then it goes, and it brings seven other ugly, nasty, evil, this is the amplified version, (laughs) spirits more ugly, evil, nasty than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. There is a principle here. Uh, God spoke to Moses talking the principle of the land. I'm not going to push it out before there's a holy occupants that can occupy it. And he speaks it about people. We can't push out the evil until there's something holy to take its place. We see this on a national level, all, or on an international level all the time. We take out Hosni Mubarak out of Egypt. And what comes in place? Muslim Brotherhood, even worse than before. But we're all about democracy, right? So they can vote, and they voted someone really bad into office. So the army revolts, and now they're back under dictatorship. Wow, even worse than before. The same reason that they revolted, to kick dictatorship out. And that's what they got. Why? Because there wasn't something holy to occupy the land. We can go on and on with, with world history in, in, in that. I mean, I, example after example Guess what? The only example of that not taking place, the United States. Why? Because there was a holy occupancy that took place when we said we're done with English rule. We're taking our stance from God. We want to be a people of covenant with God. I don't preach much about history of the United States, so there's one for you.
So God has changed the way that I've, I've been praying. As I've been praying for revival in our city, I've been praying less that God would bless our land and more that God would bring a great harvest of souls. 500,000 souls because we need something to occupy the land. We need blessing to come and that blessing needs to land on people. That blessing needs to land on hearts and souls and lives. He wants to redeem our land. Since I was out of high school, spent a few years in the world kind of exploring, but when I got born again, again, um, (laughs) some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Some of us had to be born again, again, and again. <laughs> I've always had this fascination and this hunger to study and learn about past revivals. And I remember my, even with my first computer, the first time I get this thing plugged into the internet, and I'm searching on my favorite, happened to be my favorite revival, it still is my favorite revival in world history, and it's the Welsh Revival. Is anyone in this room familiar with the Welsh Revival? Got a few people in here that are. Well, the Welsh Revival happened in 1904. So this is over 100 years ago in the, the uh, countryside of Wales, which is a section of England. Um, they had this, this revival, this widespread revival across the land. And I'm going to read you uh, the effects of the revival. As revival fires spread across Wales in the late 1904 and early 1905, although no official records were kept of the actual number converted, 150,000 is a conservative estimate during the first six months. People's lives were transformed by the thousands. This was indeed a sovereign move of God's Holy Spirit. Whole communities were turned upside down, and were radically changed from depravity to glorious goodness. The crime rate dropped, often to nothing. The police forces reported that they had little more to do than supervise the coming and going of people into the chapel prayer. While magistrates turned up at courts to discover no cases to be tried, the alcohol trade was disseminated as people were caught up more in what was happening in the local chapel than the local pub house and bars. Families experienced amazing revival. This is my favorite part. God, I just pray you would save every soul in greater Toledo, God. I pray for the revival and the restoration of the family in our city. Families experienced amazing renewal. Where the money-earning husbands and fathers had wasted away the income and sowed discord, but now following the uh, conversion to be followers of Jesus Christ, he not only provided correctly for his family needs, but was now with the family rather than wasting his time and wages in the bar. Men whose language had been filthy before learnt to talk purely. It is related that Not only did the Kohlers put in a better day's work, but also that the pony pits 
okay, so let me just explain this. Uh, they, would use, they would use horses to work, okay? They, they'd be the working. But um, the only time production actually dropped during this time is when horses were involved because the men's language were no longer cusses and angrily speaking at horses. Uh, they were actually talking kindly and not using curse words. The horses didn't understand them. Other than that, yet still, the work output increased. The dark tunnels underground in the mines echoed with sounds of prayer and hymns instead of oaths and nasty jokes and gossip. This is the byproduct of what happens when people have given themselves to godliness. When, people, when God has encountered a people and he's changed hearts. We can't pray for the byproduct without asking God first for the product. You know, revival always happens where there's personal revival, where there's personal renewal, where men and women of God take their faith serious and seek after God, not only for a whole nation, not only for a whole city, but for the whole of their heart. This is the most important place for revival to happen. It starts here. So today we're going to be talking about becoming a magnet for personal revival. And as my study on this, I've come across four uh, key points, four key points that we need to have in our lives um, in order to be a magnet for personal revival. But what are the trademarks of one who walks in personal revival? They attract the blessing of God. The joy of the Lord is evident and overflowing in their life. Their faith is absolutely contagious. And miracles happen in and through their lives on a regular basis. So the first point, when we're experiencing personal revival, we have an uncompromising trust in God. An absolutely unwavering Now, what is trust in God? I just want to make a point. When we trust, trusting in God that he will do his job while at the same time I'm being responsible for mine. A lot of times I've, I've seen believers say, well, I'm just trusting in the Lord. I'm going to take a nap. No, there is a part of us that we have to make sure that we're doing our part. And that's how the trust thing works. When, when, when we trust in God, we're saying we are doing everything on our part and it's fully contingent for this thing to come through that you do your part. Not it's fully contingent on you doing both of our parts. I find that the more that I want God to move in my life, the more I've had to put my unwavering trust in him. This is difficult. It requires that we exercise a really important spiritual muscle, and that is our faith. Notice that, uh, have you heard the term exercising faith before? Raise your hand if you've heard that term before. Has anyone ever heard uh, the, uh, you, anyone using like exercising hope? I've never heard that. Or I'm, I'm just going to exercise love. I'm going to exercise trust. 
No, we always talk about it in the terms of exercising faith. Because faith is this muscle in our bodies. Everyone was born with a certain amount of muscle mass. Some more, some less. Some of us can lift a lot of weight. Some of us can lift very little weight. But nonetheless, you were born and you have developed a certain degree of muscle mass. This is what the scripture says about faith. He says, for by the grace given to me, I'm going to read to you a little bit out of Romans 12, um, and it's talking about faith. It's going to loop it in. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now here's, here's the cool part. For as in one body, we have many members. So all of a sudden, he's, he's saying we have faith allotted to us, and now he's talking about the physical body. For in one body, we have many members, and members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members of one another, having gifts that differ accordingly to the grace given to us, let us then, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith. So if I'm going to prophesy, it requires me to take my portion of faith. How much of my faith? My full portion of faith. So if we can, if we can uh, uh, put a metric to faith, let's call my faith a, a 12. So it takes all 12 of my faith metrics to begin prophesying. We, I want to give you a really cool example. Um, on the first Friday of the month, a handful of guys, we get together in our living room, uh, in my kitchen, and we uh, just pray and read the scripture and talk about what's going on. We laugh. We have tons of fun. And uh, last, last time we met, um, one of the guys said, hey, um, let's just let's just get in a circle and let's just uh, prophesy over each other, okay? Now, d- people are on different kind of levels of the of their Christian faith. Some of them this this was very you know easy thing. For some of them, this was a, a bit of a challenge. For for uh, a handful, they had never experienced that before. At least on the okay, I'm going to now give a prophetic word. Um, and and one guy, uh, awesome young man, um, you know, he's maturing in his faith, but he's still still fresh and new and excited about the Lord. He's, you know, I said, hey, have you ever given a prophetic word before? He said, no. And every time a, we, we prayed and prophesied over a person, I'd turn and say, do you have a prophetic word? He said, no, I don't have one. Okay, next person we, we kept. And I was the, one of the last to be prayed and prophesied over. And I said, uh, you are going to get a prophetic word. <laughs> you know, we talked about it. We said, hey, how does it work and how to do it? And it's not something spooky or scary. Let me just, you know, just say, hey, you know, this idea of prophetic is really simple. I'll break it down for you. It's hearing God's voice and being able to articulate it. The Bible says that uh, he's a good shepherd and the sheep know his voice. That He's talking about you and me. If you're a believer in Christ, do you know what? Uh, God is saying you have the ability to hear his voice. And in order to prophesy, it just means to speak it out. Just open, open your mouth and let what you've heard God say. So, you know, we can demystify this, you know, thing. So, anyway, um, so we're gathered around, and they're praying for me and prophesying over me, and, and at the very end, I, I say, hey, uh, 
what's, you know, what's your prophetic word for me? And he said this one simple thing, in measure to his faith. And this was the awesome thing. That full measure of the faith, it functioned and it worked. And his prophetic word was vacation. Hallelujah, I receive it, Lord. <sighs> what he didn't know is that uh, it was the beginning of November. And although I didn't have a full-on vacation planned, uh, uh, September and October were a whirlwind for me, and I'd already, I had already uh, was gearing my heart up to take November slow, and that prophetic word was a confirmation saying, yes, George, it is, I'm giving you permission to just calm down, to chill out, to, to wake up a little bit later, and that's okay, um, and so, and so that was, that was a, a prophetic word for me. It was a one-word prophetic word in measure to his faith. So here's the thing about faith. We talk about a spiritual muscle, right? We talk about exercising the faith. And the reality is, is in order it to be proportioned to our faith, it needs to be the full amount. So we know that, let's, let's uh, put a metrics to it again. If I can lift, uh, let's say I can lift, a, I can do uh, 50, or no, 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 uh, five sets. I don't know how this weightlifting thing goes. <laughs> I can, I can do three sets of five. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, three sets of five at 180 pounds, right? Maybe that, I don't know how much I can do. I don't know if that's a lot or not, but I don't think it is actually very much. Is it? Can I do it? You think I got this? Okay. Um, you know, because I'm not a weightlifter, uh, after doing that uh, several times, I'll grow spiritual, I'll grow muscle mass, not spiritual mass, physical mass. But if I only stick to that regiment, at some point, I'll cap. Why? Because in order to grow from that point, it'll actually require me to use all of my muscle capacity. And since my muscles have grown, my muscle capacity is not limited to 180 pounds anymore. Maybe I move up to 200 or 210, 220. So in order for me to exercise, I need to move up and need to apply more faith. This is really important when we're talking about uh, living a lifestyle of, of revival, personal revival. Because in order to trust in God, this is the formula here for you, okay? I like, well, I was terrible in algebra, but for some reason I love spiritual formulas. Trust, trust in God, trusting in God equals the applied sum of our faith, not some S-O-M-E, but some S-U-M, the combined, all of it, applied faith minus our own understanding. That is trusting in God. And here is our personal revival verse. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And subtract your own understanding. Trust in the Lord minus your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your path. 
Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is good. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. If that is not personal revival, I don't know what that is. Saying, God, I need you to make my path straight. I need you to heal my body and refresh my bones. That sounds like some revival to me. Okay, the second is, and I'm going to have to move really quick. A humble heart. In order to be a magnet for personal revival, this cannot happen. A revival movement across our land cannot happen without a people with a humble heart. We even know the famous revival verse, Second Chronicles, uh, what is it? Who can, 714? Humble. It requires, there's a requirement for humble hearts. It's not if my people will pray. It's if my people will come to me with a humble heart and pray and seek me. That is huge. Do you know who the most humble people that I've ever met that exude the presence of God, that always, uh, that I always see personal revival? A lot of times people that I see that uh, really just walk in this are people that are really humble, that have struggled in a, in a lifetime and have only overcome by God's grace and mercy. Addicts. Addicts are those that walk in their recovery, those that walk. Now, I'm not talking about all addicts. I'm talking about those that are walking steadfast in their sobriety are some of the most humble people I know. In November of 1934, Bill Wilson, a struggling alcoholic, while lying in bed, depressed and despairing, he cried out, I will do anything. Anything at all, if there is a God, let him show himself to me. Bill was an alcoholic. Earlier that day, a friend had come over to his house and tried to convince Bill to give his life, surrender his life to Jesus Christ. And after denying his friend and his friend leaves, he finds himself still broken in despair, saying, maybe God can hear me. But it takes a person that's saying, I'm willing to give it all up. And God came and he encountered him in his bedroom that night. And several months later, ben, Bill penned the 12 steps that we now know are in AA. Now, this isn't something that a preacher would normally preach on a Sunday morning, but I am going to preach to you the 12 steps. Because these 12 steps, if followed, and you don't have to be an alcoholic to follow these 12 steps. 
because I, I will show you in step one that this applies to every single human being in this room. Step number one, we admit that we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have been unmanageable. Guess what? Remove that word alcohol, insert sin. We, are, we admit that we are powerless over sin. Who in this room has power over sin and death? Nobody in this room. Who does? Jesus has power over sin and death. But we have to admit that we are not Jesus. Which takes us to step number two. We come to believe that there is a greater power, insert the name Jesus in there, that ourselves could... uh, Who got it? Thank you. Someone's preaching my sermon. Someone knows this sermon a lot better than I do. Someone has walked this out and has said, I am willing to do whatever it takes to humble myself, to get right with God, that I can beat this thing. I honor you, sir. I honor all the the recovering addicts in this room today because you are a marker of God's grace and mercy and are a demonstration of personal revival to this land. That if God can heal someone that struggles with the most gripping addictions that leave them in the most despair in the pit on this earth and God can pluck them out, surely he can use you and I. Came to believe that a... Power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Jesus Christ made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. That, that we would say, Jesus, we are powerless, but you are all powerful and we have an issue, but we know that we, we can give it to you. You can take it. Yeah. Made a searching and fearless Moral inventory of ourselves in step five. Admit to God, to ourselves, and to other human beings the exact nature of our wrongs. Those two things. That we take a moral inventory and guess what? We confess our sins to one another, to God, and we will be forgiven, as the scripture says. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Reminds me of a verse. It reminds me of Paul saying, I had this thorn in my flesh and I asked God to take it away. And he said, in your weakness, I am made strong. In our shortcomings, we say, God, give us the power to overcome our shortcomings. And God says, I am your power that overcomes your shortcomings. Without me, your shortcomings remain. He doesn't remove us. He is the overriding circuit. Leaving those in place and saying, hey, I remove these things from your life. You no longer need me. made a list of all persons that we have harmed and become willing to make amends with them all, made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when it would injure them or others. This is straight out of the, this is straight out of the Scripture. This is Jesus saying, when a, when a brother or sister has an offense with you, go and make it right. When you have an offense with a brother, you need to make it right and forgive them. This is Scripture, guys. This is what it's talking about, having a humble heart. Continue to take personal inventory. And when we are wrong, promptly admit it. 
sought through prayer and meditation to prove our consciousness or conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. If that is not a lesson on prayer, I don't know what is. That we don't pray out of our own desires and our own convictions and our own passions that we say, that we say God, we will seek out your will and pray it out through our lives. I'm not praying for my own desires. I'm not praying through my own filter of, of greed and selfishness, but I'm praying through the, the pure desire of your heart, God. What is your will so I can speak it forth in my life and I can make it manifest here? AA is a training for revivalists. The last one, one of my favorites, have Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we, tr- uh, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Praise God. It's saying, hey, you can't just do this stuff on the AA meeting, but you got to live this stuff out. And guess what? When you live it out, it's contagious. When you live out a lifestyle of repentance and revival and and a humble heart, guess what? The people around you have to face their sin issues. The people around you become glaring uh, reality that they have a sin issue and they need to get right with God. The third one. And I'm going to move through these next two even faster. Being a lover of God. And I would say, City Light Church, that you guys um, are a really great example of being lovers of God. And I'm proud and honored to be a part of this church. Valentine's Day fell on a Sunday in 1904 in a small country church in the Welsh countryside. That Sunday morning, a young Flory Evans stood to her feet only a few days old in her faith in the middle of the service and yelled out at the top of her lungs, I love Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, with all of my heart. That moment in early spring was the the marker of when that revival started had been brewing for months, maybe even years before, but that was the breaking point. And from that place, it exploded with that young, probably 16-year-old girl standing and yelling at the top of her lungs, I love Jesus with all of my heart because the reality as revivalists, as those who live in a life of personal revival, our love for God. The world knows. Tell me this. Have you ever seen a, a pair of young lovers that have recently fallen in love that no one knew about their love? Even when they try to hide it, the whole world can see. That is our relationship with God. That we're so in love with Jesus that it is impossible to hide. Lastly, When we become a magnet for revival, it's because we are a people, we are a person that exudes generosity. We have to be a giving people. Am I talking financially? Absolutely. But I'm talking in every realm of giving. 
I'm talking about in giving of our time. I'm talking a generous heart and a generous disposition in life. Matthew 25. This verse kind of gets me a little bit. Jesus is talking in a parable, and he's telling what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And he's saying, And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, I was a foreigner, I was an immigrant from Palestine. You welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visited you? And it says, and the king will answer. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When we look into the faces of the desperate of the needy, of the broken, of those that lack. And we become generous towards them. Jesus becomes manifested in that place. That is what he is saying. That's not me coming up with some bizarre theology. That is what Jesus is saying. When you've given unto the least of these... I am the one that received it at that point. I was there that moment that you rolled down the car window and extended grace and mercy to a man who probably didn't deserve it. It was at that moment that you sent that letter to that person in prison who had made a mess out of society. Extending mercy to someone who didn't deserve it. You did that to me. Generous people, they're some of the happiest people that I know. Joy flows out of their life. And I'm honored to know many of them and aspire to be like them. We want to be a people of revival. And revival for a city, for a nation, starts with us.
Isaiah, my closing verse, and this will be our prayer as well. Chapter 6. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the foundations of the threshold shook at his as voice of him who calling, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim, an angel, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has taken away and your sins atoned for. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? And in that place, fear gripping his body, being in a place he'd never seen before, but being sanctified by the Holy of Holies, yells out, bursting from his lips. Here I am. Send me. We are a people of unclean lips coming from a city that's unclean. But with humble hearts we go before God saying we are powerless over our sin, but we know one who can make us a new creation in Christ. God, this morning, this afternoon, as we close today, we hear your cry, your call, saying, I want to save a city as in the days of, of Jonah, I want to save a city. Who will go? Jesus, would you purify us this morning? Would you bring revival to our lives that we can go from this place and bring revival to a city? Bring revival to a barber shop. Bring revival to a grocery store. God, bring revival to our homes, our broken homes and our families. Bring revival to the faces of those that we know that are lost and far from you, but searching for something. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll be blessed, and we'll see you again next week.